Good morning. Happy Father's Day to the dads, also to the moms. You help a whole bunch. We couldn't be fathers without you. That's right, you get it. It's my pleasure to open up God's Word with you. We're in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 53. Sometimes finding out the truth is seemingly more painful uh, than staying in the dark. I don't know if you guys have ever heard a piece of information that you actually kind of wanted to shove back in when you heard it. Uh, When I was a teenager, my parents would drop me off at at youth group with my siblings, and this was every Sunday night, and this was for about six years. And um, I never actually asked what my parents did while we were at youth group. I think in hindsight, I probably would have assumed, oh, they're probably on a date or something. And uh, But they never really said a whole lot about it. We weren't really that kind of a family. But 10 years later, they confessed. And they were actually doing something that could have gotten them kicked out of my church. You guys with me? I'm with me. <laughs> they had been going to marriage counseling. Now, that might not seem very striking today, but you have to know my parents' generation to realize how shocking that would have been. In my particular church, here's how the culture went. If you had a problem, you worked it out with the Lord privately. And if you couldn't do that, well, I guess you weren't that good of a Christian. What made it painful is actually that mentality had kind of seeped into my household and I just hadn't known it. I was raised in that world. That world was normal to me. In hindsight, I don't blame my parents. That's the household they were raised in. My father's father was a Vietnam vet and had endured all kinds of crazy stuff. But how sad is it that in a church with a Bible on every seat that you could be mocked if you asked for help. Isn't that just the height of irony? Culturally speaking, my parents took a big risk when they did this. They stood out in a bad way for doing something good. And in a sense, where they should have been friends, they were aliens. People just couldn't understand why they would need this. But they did it, and our family stayed together, and a few in our church did not. And they stayed together. And I think about that on Father's Day. Thanks, Dad. When Jesus walked the earth, he was an alien in a way that we may never fully be able to relate to. He was an alien in every sense of the world in every sense of the word and the world. The religious leaders, they didn't get him at all. He stood for something that they didn't, and he rejected everything they worshipped. He promoted being selfless and kindness, uh, and he promoted selflessness and kindness and meekness, and the world just doesn't work that way. That's not how people naturally bend. He was building a kingdom that they, quite frankly, couldn't even stomach. 
It's like they, if it were food, they couldn't even eat it. And even the sad truth is that Jesus' own disciples, as we've been reading through Mark, they're, they're, they're saying they get it. They're attempting to get it. But really, they're not really swallowing it either. And so now, as we continue building toward the climax of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14, the religious leaders have arrested Jesus by night for one reason. They want him gone. And Jesus' disciples have fled. They want to be gone from him. In fact, if I might be so bold, the world is preparing to almost vomit Jesus out because they would have no part of him. He is holy. He is completely unlike them. And that's the point of today's text. Holiness is alien. That's how holiness works. It just doesn't fit in here. So let's watch what the world does to King Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 53, and uh, I'm going to read through verse 65 for your first point. The holy will be convicted. Great. So let's start in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and all the elders, and all the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And guards received him with blows. I'm going to focus in on Jesus here and kind of ignore Peter for the time being. And I just want to help us understand what's going on here. Jesus is alone, and he's in the presence of every important religious person in the area. And in verse 55, they're all seeking evidence to put him to death, but there isn't any. But they're on a mission, and so they're calling up false witnesses, but the testimonies aren't lining up. I mean, let's just look at how crooked they are. In verse 58... We're going to walk through and kind of understand what's exactly wrong with what they're saying because I think it's actually very significant to the book of Mark. In verse 58, one person attributes this quote to Jesus. He says, I will destroy this temple that is made by made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, this is actually not quoted earlier in Mark, but it's actually a legitimate quote. It's from the book of John. It's from chapter 2. Don't bother going there. I'll just give you the context. 
This is early. This is from early in Jesus's ministry, when he had just cleared out the Jewish temple with a whip, because God's people were disgracing it by making it into a business. Every televangelist that you've seen on TV that makes you want to make your own whip, this is that scenario. And the people are actually kind of shocked by this boldness. And so they ask him for a sign. By what authority do you do this? They want authority. They want to know why he thinks he can tell them how to run their business. And what Jesus does say is this, destroy this temple. So in other words, you destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And then it's clarified in the book of John that the temple he's referring to was his own body. So what's the difference between the two quotes, the misquote and the real quote? Well, the misquote in Mark actually paints Jesus as a political revolutionary. I'm going to destroy this temple, and in you know, three days, somebody else is going to build it. I don't know, maybe my people. You know, like he would destroy the temple and raise his own. And you know, to be fair, it might have kind of seemed this way because he had a whip at the time, right? If some guy showed up and started flipping tables in the back and overgoes the hot cocoa machine, you'd probably think he was out to get you, right? You probably would not think this person has a godly agenda. You would probably not think that. But Jesus, as we know, wasn't talking about earthly things. He wasn't talking about a political revolution. He was talking about himself. He was talking about heavenly things. And so he was talking about them destroying his body or temple. In other words, they're assuming he's talking about an earthly plan, but in reality, he's talking about a heavenly plan. And I need you to remember that because it's going to come up again very soon. For now, the false accusations are actually still not lining up. And so... In a fair trial, this stuff actually wouldn't even be admitted. But still, if you if you can imagine kind of a circus where people are getting worked up and there's a bunch of lies and anybody with half a brain can kind of look at those testimonies and say, something's not right here, you would you would assume that Jesus would do what he's done all throughout the rest of the book. You'd think he would shut them down. Because before, they had pretty tricky questions, and he nailed them. Here, it's like a, it's like a slow-pitch softball right over the plate, and he just doesn't swing. Strike. Because he actually gets that, that chance to swing, and it's actually on a silver platter. The high priest, in the midst of this, he asked Jesus, what do you say about these charges? And for a moment, just imagine... What Jesus, with perfect knowledge of the hearts of every person in the room, could have said. Just imagine, he could have been like, you first, and you, and you better run. He could have done that. He could silence his critics, but instead, he is silent. He could have silenced his critics, but instead, he's silent. I could say a lot about this moment. But instead, I'm just going to say this. The silence is deafening. You can imagine them, after all that history of Jesus fighting back, that he's going to swing on them. But he doesn't. So the high priest just kind of sits there. 
his job just became a lot more complicated because now he has to be the prosecutor. And so, since he's part of the mob out to kill Jesus, he just goes right forward and says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Or the Son of God? And this is actually addressing Jesus' public teaching earlier in Mark when he did say that. He was quoting the Old Testament. And finally, Jesus does speak. But he doesn't speak then, but he does speak now. Here's what he says. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming down with the clouds of, of heaven. He does not make any attempt to bring order to the chaos with this statement. Because the high priest is actually outraged. Jesus actually says something that really gets him in hot water, so to speak. Let me explain what Jesus meant here, and then I'm going to tell you why I think he's being so cryptic. Because this is not really a clear statement. Peter actually mentioned this verse a few weeks ago, and it looks a lot like a quote from the book of Daniel, especially the uh, reference to the uh, Son of Man. It's a quote from the book of Daniel. And here's the short of it. Here's what's going on here. Jesus is talking about heavenly things again. Just like with the earlier false accusations, Jesus' words are about his ascension after his resurrection. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. But this is misinterpreted, again, by the high priest, more specifically, as an earthly plan. So again, Jesus says, heavenly, and the high priest thinks earthly. And Jesus knows that the high priest would interpret it this way because he knows all things. So he offers no clarity on purpose. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I were on trial for something I didn't do, I would try to be as clear as possible. So here's why I think Jesus does this. And it's the main point. Holiness is alien. Jesus could have explained everything. Do you think they would have believed him? They were on a mission. Their earthly kingdom was being threatened by Jesus' existence, and that was driving everything that they did. You ever talk to somebody like that, where they've made up their mind before you start the... It doesn't matter what you say. They've got a deeper problem. So in other words, they had ears, but they couldn't hear. And so the king would actually be convicted. Now this, reading this, shows the reader just how opposed the kingdom of heaven is to the kingdom of earth. They just don't mix. Because the earth just accuses its creator of blasphemy. And so that's what the high priest convicts Jesus of without any further witnesses in verse 63. Though so far all of them have been liars. And the high priest actually hands the, the gavel to the crowd. What do you want? He's totally bowing to the world. And they pronounce death of the king. And so to them, this bad kingdom is on its way out. But in reality, the good kingdom is on the way in. I just want to pause here now, and I just want to drift out to the exterior of this scene as we bring Peter into the story. He is within earshot. And actually, I, I looked at the archaeological evidence. So we kind of dug up this place. 
And by the evidence I looked at, I would actually argue that Peter can actually see Jesus at this point. He has a line of sight. Peter, who time and again, remember, he would, he would profess loyalty to Jesus, but he would just keep falling short. Peter, whose own kingdom that he struggled with was fame and glory. He wanted that, he wanted that right-hand seat. He wanted the fame. He wanted what Jesus was actually living against. You know, you can actually imagine Peter as a child looking up to all these high priests. Could you imagine that? I could. Looking up to them, imagining himself in their robes, and they're all just wailing on Jesus. And they're piling up these false testimonies, and the crowd is in a total frenzy. And they're just striking Jesus, and they're spitting on him. And Jesus doesn't defend himself. And in court, that usually means that you've given up. And in fact, the lone statement he, he did make earned him a very quick death sentence. Jesus' earthly reputation right now is not unlike an ember in the fire that Peter's standing around. In one moment, it just kind of drifts up into the night and it's gone. How do you think Peter feels right now? Do you think he looks at Jesus and sees a king? This is the king. He's abused. He's rejected. He's alien. He just doesn't mix. But this is what the new kingdom looks like. It's not like the world. It can't be. It shouldn't be. It, it should look different. And at times, like it's doing here, it should completely baffle people, but not because it's unclear. It should baffle people because God is not like us. God is not like us. Let me now show you how much you deserve this king. Let's move on to point two. We're going to read the next chunk of text, 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I'm just going to spend some time making a bunch of contrasts now. Because where Jesus is mostly quiet, Peter is mostly loud. Where Jesus tells the truth, Peter lies. His view of Jesus has crumbled so much he has completely forgotten what he just did a few hours ago, defending Jesus with a sword. Now, in a sense, Peter's tongue is like a sword, and he's just running Jesus through. Look at this progression. Look what happens. He's spotted by a young servant girl. Do you know what that means? That means nothing. 
Her testimony would have meant pretty much nothing back in, back in these days. And in a sense, she's probably the very opposite of a high priest. Where the high priest has much authority, a servant girl would have had none. Her witness wouldn't even have been admissible in court. That's how it worked back then. We've come a long way. But yet, Peter denies Jesus and he runs from her. That's how quickly he's broken. He's broken by someone who really has no authority. And in verse 69, it would actually appear as though this was almost like an escape. She spots him again. It's almost like he just kind of took off into the night and hid. And this time he's in the entryway and she tells others. She's not a false witness. She's a true witness. She saw him. Peter's now lying to many people. And the crowd begins to call Peter out. You can imagine that same frenzy building back up, except it's, it's a frenzy around a, a true conviction. They're calling him out and they're insisting on his identity. Just like Jesus, but, but unlike Jesus, Peter then begins to call down curses on himself. This is probably the, uh, the harshest contrast of all. But first, I want to pause for a minute. There's a, there's a great old 19th century theologian named Albert Barnes, and he kind of reflected on what's going on here. And I just really like what he had to say. Here's what he said. Peter could no longer resist the evidence that he was known. It had been repeatedly charged on him. His language had betrayed him, and there was a positive true witness who had seen him. He felt it necessary, therefore, to be still more decided, a.k.a. he was on a mission, and he accordingly added to the sin of denying his Lord the deep aggravation of profane cursing and swearing, affirming as true what he must have known was false, that he knew not the man. When you think about what's going on here, we're actually seeing identities revealed. The actions of Jesus and Peter are opposite because Jesus and Peter are opposite. Jesus invokes God's words from heaven when his identity is questioned. But Peter invokes curses from hell. And what does this get Peter? Well, he, he goes free. And so he runs free into the night and the rooster crows and he's broken. And in his escape, he actually looks a lot more like the religious leaders than Jesus. Because he's free, but he's not. Because as he escapes, he, he breaks down because his kingdom has just brought him misery. Peter, who was the closest to Jesus and gave it his absolute best shot, fell short. He's not a disciple. He's a criminal. So why is Jesus headed to the cross while Peter's exonerated? Peter should go on that cross. And the high priest and all his friends should be in a road right next to him. In fact, there should be a great line of crosses and the whole world should be there. Anybody but Jesus. Right? 
You ever think that? Anybody but Jesus. No. That's exactly why Jesus willingly and silently would accept what belonged to us. Because no other death would have been enough. God's law from the very beginning, which demands perfection, wouldn't have been satisfied if it would have been Peter or the high priest or you or me. Another way to put it, holiness is alien because it has to be. We need that much help. Jesus has to be everything because we can't be anything. See how much different this is than Jesus makes me a little better? I was a bad person and then Jesus made me a good person. See how different this is than that? It's very different. Do you know how much this revelation would have shook the original audience? Day after day. Just imagine day after day. Year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, God's people all trying to build a ladder to heaven, and then they read this, and they realize that the gap is too great, but Jesus bridged that gap. Just imagine the weight that would be lifted. If you're a Christian, imagine the weight that perhaps was lifted when you first believed. And then don't forget that. And so the implication for the original audience is this. That they would, in the same manner of Jesus, be aliens to the world. And this led to a radical application for the very first Christians. It was this. Let the truth about Jesus bring you condemnation from a dead earth. So in Jesus, they'll be aliens. And if you keep reading the New Testament, you can see this. You ever read the book of Acts? Just read through there. And how much did these guys stand out? You see all the disciples except one guy, many in a similar fashion to Jesus. In fact, the only one who didn't die, John, guess what happens to him? He gets sent off on an island because they don't know what to do with him. He's an alien. They're all alien. Holiness is like that. It means you run from the, the, the comfort and the convenience and the approval of the world, and the world just hates that. And it still does. So here's what that means for you. It means a few things. Getting the application here. First, it means that if you're not a Christian, that gap between you and God is still present, and you can't cross that gap. You may be friends with the world, and that might feel real good, but you're alien to God. You need Jesus. If you are a Christian, it means that you're not an alien separated from God. In fact, Jesus calls you family elsewhere. But now, you're an alien from the world. But you still live there. Let me explain two ways this plays out, and then I'll sit down. First is a way in which this plays out internally, just inside you. There's probably a bunch I could pick. This one's my favorite. Don't be surprised when living as an alien is hard. 
Another way I could say it is, don't be surprised when obeying Jesus is hard. Because you're literally warring against your own body. Read Romans 7, if you haven't done that. If you have, read it again, it's great. Because your body still wants very much to be comfortable. Eat a cheeseburger. It's a proof. When I said the word counseling earlier, I bet some of you might even have bristled a little bit. I don't need that, right? It was crazy. I was just thinking about this as I added my story of my parents in, which I just, the Lord brought to mind yesterday, so it came in relatively late in the game. You know, my, my, my father and my mother grew up in houses where you just did not admit weakness. You didn't talk about your feelings. You just kind of, it's just that post-World War II, just get it done mentality. You just never admitted help. It was un-American. And yet, the Lord softened their hearts enough to go to counseling and be aliens for it. And as a result, my parents raised me in an environment that, while not perfect, I would say is probably a step better than the one they grew up in. You know, they, they didn't fully understand grace in the same level that maybe you or I do, but you should have seen their church. <laughs> it's amazing they got out alive. And so, if my, my dad especially, if he could admit that, and he could get help, man, and I'm raising an environment, and, and I'm around you guys, and, you know, it's just a feast of the word. It's just great, you know, one of these sermons was probably better than a year's worth of sermons I heard growing up, combined. And yet, when the thought pops into my mind, Dan, you should probably get counseling for that, I say, no, I don't need that, right? I'm in a good church, around good people. If you have hidden sin, and time passes, and you don't do anything about that, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's going to affect your kids. And if you're married, you will probably not stay married. Or I might say even worse, you will spend your entire life thinking you're in a good marriage and you're not. And you're going to be very surprised. Because there's many in Matthew 7 that on the day of Jesus' return are going to say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And he's going to say, I don't know you. You're an alien to me. If you need to confess, if you need to repent, do that. If you need counseling, go get it. Don't try to fit in with a dead world. They're dead. Here's an external application. Now, all, all that's internal. Here's an external one. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. The world is dead, so why do we expect holiness from it? Here's what I mean. When you read the news, or you're scrolling, or you find out some horrible secret in your family, or your neighborhood, or your school, or your country, 
and you say to yourself, I can't believe somebody would do that. Why would they do that? What do you expect from the world? What do you expect from them? They don't know Jesus. I would consider it more of a shock that the world would do anything even remotely moral or upright. You know, there's a statistic out there about 50% of marriages end in divorce, and I don't know if that's true or not. But you know what? I'm actually surprised 50% of them stay together. How could they even begin to do that without Jesus? Couldn't. I would rather expect them, when you obey God and stand out, to mock you, to hate you. They should. If you're in Christ, you're alien. You don't fit in. You shouldn't fit in. And if I might be so bold, I'll say this. If you don't have any enemies here on the earth, it might be because you're really a part of their kingdom. If you don't have any enemies, you might be trying harder to fit in than you think. But there's hope, and it's Jesus. My dad did a better job by God's grace than his father. And I, by God's grace, will do a better job than my dad did. I think that's the hope of every father. But look at Jesus. You want a father like that? You got one. You have a father that's willing to be an alien so that he can save many. Willing to be cast down so that he can be lifted up. Because we're aliens of the world, but if we're in Christ, we're friends of God, and that's what matters. That's how Jesus obeyed, and so we follow him by obeying likewise. And so then, this, this is your life. Here's your life. Go love people and tell them about Jesus, and then maybe you suffer for that, and you keep on loving them. And then if someone dares to ask you, why you're returning their hate with love, tell them about Jesus. And if they listen, another alien gets welcome to the kingdom. And if they kill you, welcome home. So for now, be happy aliens, because this earthly kingdom is passing away, and Christ's kingdom stands forever. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much that despite the internal pressures and the external pressures to be friends with the world, that we can rather not be friends with the world, that we cannot do what they do, that we can not live the way they live and, and pay the prices that they're paying. But Lord, we can suffer for something much better. Lord, we can actually be part of a great kingdom. Lord, I think about all the, the sins in my life, and I, I just wonder, how many sacrifices would it take to satisfy? How many goats? How many sheep? How many sacrifices? And because of Jesus, just one. Just one, and it's already been made. Lord, help me to remember that. Help me to live in freedom so that when the world looks at me, they can say, you don't fit in.
You don't belong here, and I can say you're right. Lord, I pray the same for my friends here. Amen.